Thank you. Thanks, Max. And thanks for um, having me out. Thanks to Matt and Danny for organizing. John's not here, but thanks to him and to Templeton for, um, for making this possible. So, um, so my plan for today is to um, talk about the justification of beliefs in communities or groups. Okay, I'm not going to say a whole lot about what. Um, I mean, I've got a whole paper on how to individu individuate various groups. So I'm just going to kind of take as like paradigmatic groups. You know, maybe like religious communities. I mean, obviously, for the purposes of this conference, religious community is going to be the group that I'm most interested in. But also, if you want kind of other points of reference, I think like corporations, businesses, these would be some other kinds of groups that I think would really fit um, what I'm what I'm going to be talking about today. Um, so traditionally, when we wanted to think about how to just how to you know kind of have justified religious beliefs, um, most of the approaches were what we might call individualistic. So. Um, so, you know, there's obviously a lot of um, attempts at saying why religious beliefs, like, you know, my believing that God exists, um, why those beliefs might be epistemically justified through, for instance, like Bill Alston argued that, you know, there are, are seemings that might help justify that. Traditional argumentation, like the ontological, cosmological, and teleological arguments might justify belief that God exists. Um, perhaps I have some sort of faculty you know, some sort of special faculty that when it's functioning properly, this justifies my belief in God. So all of these approaches, a lot of these traditional approaches are what we might call individualistic. Um, but it's, it's in a way surprising that so much, um, so many attempts at justifying religious belief left out the social dimension of justifying religious belief, given that you know, most, if not all, religious belief takes place in the context of religious communities, and in fact, often arises out of religious communities, and you know, is a is a um, you know depends heavily on participation and the testimony of religious communities. So, um, so very recently, um, I mean, and this is not to say no one did this in the past, but I think that more recently there have been there's been greater attention paid to the idea that religious belief can be justified via um, its role in a broader religious community. Um, and so this is what we might call a more social approach. One social approach, this is not to say this is the only social approach, but one social approach says that religious belief is justified by virtue of its being held as a member of a religious community. So the slogan here that we might think for this approach would be my belief, for instance, that God exists, you know, what some sort of religious belief, is justified because our belief that God exists is justified, okay? So by virtue of my membership in a community and the community's belief being justified, my belief inherits its justification from my participation or my membership in that kind of community. Um, we see this in various places, but one of the most recent places that this sort of broad approach shows up is in the work of Linda Zagzepski, who has recently written a book on um, authority. And um, these are a couple of principles. And later in the book, she connects this up specifically with religious communities. Okay, so she is, um, and obviously, just given like Linda's other work and given some of her interests, it's pretty clear that she thinks that her model of authority um, connects very naturally with Catholic faith, for instance, right, and being a member of, a Catholic, of the Catholic community. 
I mean, that's, that's her tradition. I, I'm sure she would say it connects up with other religious traditions as well, but I know at least that she, she believes that. Okay, so, um, so just a couple of principles on your handout. The justification of communal epistemic authority. One, the authority of my community is justified for me by my conscientious judgment that I am more likely to believe the truth and avoid falsehood. If I believe what we believe, then if I try to figure out what to believe in a way that is independent of us. So it's the we belief, it's the belief that the community shares, okay, and my participation in that community and my rational, you know, kind of my rational judgment that my, my sharing in this belief, my kind of being a member of this community and believing what we believe as a we, okay, is what gives my belief its justification. So, um, Given this sort of more social approach, which I actually think has a great, I mean, I, I, mean, I think that the, the role of the social and the role of the religious community ought to be more center stage in conversations about the justification of religious belief. What I want to do today is focus on what it is, generally speaking, and it would obviously apply specifically to religious communities, what we mean by saying that we justifiably believe something. What does it mean for a community or a group to have a justified belief? So that's going to be the, the um, topic that I'm going to take up today. Just as a little kind of like preview of what's to come, one of the things that I think is going to be interesting about what drops out of my, my, my paper is that these more social approaches that we've seen more recently, like for instance, I think paradigmatically in Zagzebski's book, is that there's this idea that going the social route is in a way easier on the individual, right? I mean, like in, in some ways, the epistemic responsibility is kind of shifted over to the community or shifted over through this kind of deference or trust or pick, you know, taking as an authority, like my community is, is functioning as an authority. And I think interestingly, this like shift away from these individualistic approaches towards a more social approach is taken to kind of take the responsibility off the individual. We can defer, we can pick authorities, we can trust, and then we have very little epistemic work to do, or at least less epistemic work to do than the more individualistic approaches. One thing that I think I'm going to be arguing today is that actually is false. I'm not saying that the social approach is misguided or that we can't go the social approach, but I actually think that going the social approach is more epistemic work than going the individual work. I think you've got work to do at the individual epistemic, when I mean work, epistemic, you've got epistemic work to do at the individual level, and new work comes along by virtue of your membership in a group. So go social, that's fine, but it's just going to be more epistemic work than justifying your religious beliefs individually. What's that? <laughs> You're like, I don't need any more work. <laughs> okay. I started at 35 after, is that right? Okay. Um, so the handout looks long. I'm going to try to get through it, um, the first couple of sections, like really, really quickly. Like to section five. I'll try to do it in like 10 minutes. Let's see. <clears throat> okay. So, um, <laughs> you seem doubtful. Um, so there's actually not been a ton of work on how to understand the justified beliefs of communities or of groups. Okay, I'm going to be using those terms interchangeably. Um, so this, the most common um, approaches are what I call inflationary views. Okay. So pick any collective phenomenon you want, okay? It doesn't, it, it, I mean, I'm interested today in justified belief, but pick knowledge, belief, 
can be an emotion, anything, any, any collective phenomenon, anything you think that a collective entity, anything that we like attribute to collective entities. The standard way to argue for inflationism is as follows. You try to produce a divergence argument, okay? You try to show that it is intuitively plausible to say that the collective phenomenon can exist despite the fact that there is no individual member that instantiates that property or that has that state, okay? So a classic divergence argument, let's say for belief, well, for justified belief, let's focus on that, would be to say, look, here's a paradigmatic case, totally plausible to say that the group justifiably believes that P, but we cannot say that any individual member justifiably believes that P. Obviously then, a group's justifiably believing that P is over and above its individual members justifiably believing that P. That's just what I mean by inflationism, okay? An inflationary theory is one that says that group phenomena are irreducible to individual phenomena, okay? So, as you know, we would expect, when people argue for inflationism about justified group belief, they do so through classic um, divergence arguments. Okay, um, so here's one that creeps up with um, this form of our, I mean, th this, this doesn't really belong to anyone, this case, I mean, but it's, I mean, you see versions of this all over the place, okay? Okay, so I call this different evidence. So a jury is deliberating about whether the defendant in a murder trial is innocent or guilty. Each member of the jury is privy to evidence that the defendant was seen fleeing the scene of the crime with blood spatter on his clothes, but it is grounded in hearsay that, though reliable, was ruled as inadmissible by the judge. Given only the admissible evidence, the jury as a group justifiably believes that the defendant is innocent but not a single juror justifiably believes this proposition because it's defeated for each of them as individuals by the relevant reliable hearsay evidence. Okay, so the best defense I've seen of this kind of case goes something like this. It says, look, there are some groups that we might call chartered groups. A chartered group is the sort of group that exists because it has a particular function or role. It's got a particular charter, okay? It wouldn't exist without that function or role. A jury is a paradigmatic chartered group, okay? It exists because it has a particular job to do, and that job is to listen to the details of the case and issue a verdict and you know, whatever. Um, okay, so within that charter, there are certain epistemic, practical, other kinds of constraints that exist, okay? If those, char if those constraints are violated too flagrantly, you cease to be the group in question, okay? So for instance, I mean, we can think of this, I don't know why I always use sports examples, I know nothing about sports, I always have like way too many people on like the field and stuff, but anyway, you can think about like, like a, a basketball team, okay? Like, if they're um, like double dribbling the ball, Double, is that a word? Yeah. Someone shook their head back here and made me insecure. Um, that's still playing basketball, but breaking the rules, okay? If they're all running with the ball on the court, right, holding it, at some point, they've ceased to be, we might say, I mean, this so says this argument, they've ceased to be a basketball team at some point, right? I mean, like, there's breaking some rules and then there's just no longer being the group in question, okay? Because you're just not, 
there are just, you're just not kind of functioning in accordance with the charter, and a chartered group is such that it only exists if it has, you know, if it's, if it's functioning in accordance with that charter. Okay, so says this argument, in this kind of case, the charter of the jury is specifically to not consider hearsay evidence, okay? Were they to consider the hearsay evidence, they would cease to be, the, cease to be functioning as a jury. I mean, I see, I see skepticism. I mean, I'm skeptical myself, but just like, just go with me here. Because um, obviously, I'm going to reject this. But anyway, um, they would cease to function as the jury. So qua jury, they simply cannot consider the reliable hearsay evidence, no matter how epistemically good it is. Okay? So the jury, qua jury, justifiably believes that the defendant is innocent, but the individual members are not bound by that epistemic constraint. Okay, they can consider the hearsay evidence. So each of them is um, justifiably believes that the defendant is guilty. Okay, hence they, that's how they try to get the, the divergence. Okay, um, this kind of argument is said to support two different kinds of conclusions, a negative and a positive one. The negative one is um, what I call non-summativism, a group G justifiably believing that P cannot be understood only in terms of some or all of G's members justifiably believing that P. And then the positive conclusion is what I call inflationism. Um, a group G justifiably believing that P is understood in terms of the group itself justifiably believing that P, where this is over and above or otherwise distinct from the individual members of G justifiably believing that P. Okay. <clears throat> So that's um, the general way of getting to inflationism. Now we need a particular inflationary theory. And the common, the most widely accepted inflationary theory is what we can call the joint acceptance account. So the joint acceptance account says that what brings about justified belief is some sort of collective or joint acceptance. Okay. So, the version on your handout is from Fred Schmidt. He says, a group G justifiably believes that P if and only if G has good reason to believe that P, where G has a reason R to believe that P if and only if all members of G would properly express openly a willingness to accept R jointly as the group's reason to believe that P. Okay, in a nutshell, what this says is, we as a group have a reason to believe that P so long as we collectively accept that P as our reason, okay? Now for justification, Schmidt says the reason has to be a good one. So it's a, like a two-tiered view. First question is when does a group have a reason at all? And the second one is when is that reason a good one, an epistemically good one? For Schmidt, the reason is an epistemically good one, he thinks, when it's reliably produced. He's a reliable, reliableist on this matter. But I'm not interested in the reliableism. I don't actually think that we need to even talk about the reliableism. I think we can spend time just focusing on the joint acceptance part. So we'll see in the collective epistemology literature that there's lots of versions of this. And then fleshing out what it is to be good is done in a variety of ways. Okay? But many people endorse, who are inflationary theorists endure this broad approach. That what makes it ours, what makes it something that belongs to the group, is that it is jointly accepted, okay? And so um, that's what makes it the case that a, that a reason is available to the group. Um, 
I'm going to raise um, two very quick problems for the joint acceptance account. I don't think that this approach is um, promising. And then I want to spend the, the bulk of the time on um, deflation, a deflationary approach and um, a, a what I think is a more promising overall way of conceiving of uh, justified group belief. Okay, so um, I think that um, there are problems with this view from, um, sorry, hold on, from two different directions. Okay. Um, Actually, just scratch that. I'm not going to tell you the one direction. I'm just going to stick with the second direction in, for, for reasons of time. Okay, so um, in the paper, I've got that I think that there's a sense in which it's too difficult to come by, but I'm just going to focus on the way in which I think this approach makes group justification too easy to come by. Okay, so these are two um, cases just to think about on your handout. I call them ignoring evidence and fabricating evidence. Okay, so the first one, Philip Morris, is one of the largest tobacco companies in the world, and each of its operative members is individually aware of the massive amounts of scientific evidence revealing not only the addictiveness of smoking, but also the links it has with lung cancer and heart disease. Moreover, each individual member believes that the dangers of smoking gives the company a reason to believe that warning labels should be placed on cigarette boxes. But because of what's at stake financially and legally, none of these members would properly express a willingness to accept that the dangers of smoking give Philip Morris a reason to believe that it should put warning labels on cigarette boxes. Let me just um, pause and like say, just for clarificatory reasons, give, say a few words. First, by operative members, I just mean those members that have decision-making authority in a relevant domain. Okay, so a big corporation like Philip Morris is going to have operative members with respect to some things that aren't, they're not going to be operative members with respect to others. I mean, like the cleaning staff are going to be operative members with respect to some things, but not with respect to others, obviously. The second thing is, what does Schmidt mean by would properly express? Right? You might think that that's epistemic, right? You might think that there's, um, that it's, a, it's a, you know, an, a, 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 an epistemic notion of proper, but it's not and it shouldn't be for someone like Schmidt. And the reason is because obviously, fundamentally, he's a joint acceptance theorist. He's an inflationary theorist. He thinks that like, the, reasons, the, the reasons come about through the collective acceptance, not by any sensitivity to the evidence. The epistemology comes in once the group has the reasons available to them. So what Schmidt means by properly is a procedural matter. Okay, so he thinks that they would properly express a willingness. Um, what he means by that is given like the constraints of the group. Okay, given like kind of the, the, the you know, like the, the, the you know, like the um, various different structural, you know, um, constraints that the group is committed to. And like I said, he shouldn't be smuggling an epistemology there because the whole idea is that he wants it to be the case that with these divergence cases, the group has a reason, um, even though no individual member does, right? And so he wants this to be tracking what is going on at the group level, at the collective level. Okay, so I just wanted to flag that. Okay, so with ignoring evidence, we've got... Um, Group members just not agreeing to accept evidence that is available to them, um, you know, for obviously really poor epistemic reasons. And according to Schmidt, then, it follows from this that they just don't have the reasons available to them. 
okay? Um, I think that this is, a, you, know, a, you know, very counterintuitive. Fabricating evidence is just another version of this. It's the flip side. So it's the same idea, Philip Morris, you know, and, um, you know, the same sort of idea, but entirely because of what is at stake financially and legally, each of the operative members decides to jointly accept that all of the scientists working on the relationship between smoking and health problems are liars. So given this, they also jointly accept that the duplicity of the scientists gives Philip Morris a reason to believe that the results of the study showing a connection between smoking and lung cancer and heart disease are unreliable. So again, just because they decide to collectively accept something, the view says they have a reason to not put, um, you know, warning labels on cigarette boxes. And even if you think that you can take care of this problem at the epistemic level, which I don't think you can, because you can always kind of restrict the amount of evidence available or, you know, cherry pick your data so that it's just reliable pieces or something. But no matter what, the idea is that um, these, you know, that the, the company has reasons available to them simply by virtue of making up, you know, reason to, ex to kind of jointly accept something. For both of these, re I mean, and, and both of these cases I think are, are really problematic. So my, so I think that in the first case in ignoring evidence, I think that that shows that the relevant kind of joint acceptance isn't necessary for a group to possess a reason, since I think Philip Morris does clearly have a reason to believe that warning labels should be placed on cigarette boxes, even in the absence of the joint acceptance of that claim by its members. And in fabricating evidence, I think it reveals that the relevant kind of joint acceptance is not sufficient, since Philip Morris does not have a reason to, to believe that the results of the study showing a connection between smoking and health problems are unreliable, despite there being joint acceptance. So my diagnosis of the problem is that I think that um, this account of group reasons, um, and I think any account of group reasons that relies entirely on joint acceptance succumbs to what I call the illegitimate manipulation of evidence problem. If the justification of group beliefs can be achieved through wholly voluntary means, then the evidence available to the group can be illegitimately manipulated, thereby severing the connection between group epistemic justification and truth conduciveness. And I think that joint acceptance is paradigmatically voluntary. So I think that there's not going to be any version of the joint acceptance account that is going to get the right kind of result here. Okay. Um, so I've been talking for 25 minutes. I'm going to skip the revisiting divergence section. I'll just say in one sentence what I do in that section of the paper. I go back to the example that motivated the joint acceptance view in the first place, the view that motivates inflationism, and I give alternative diagnoses of what's going on in the divergence cases. Pretty straightforward. I just don't think that we have to commit to it being epistemic justification at both levels. You know what I mean? I think we can say that they're legally justified or they would be. I mean, I think there's a whole bunch of things that we can say. I don't think that there's any reason we're committed to the diagnosis. So that's what I do in that section. So I just kind of hope that we've just put the joint, like that inflationary approach to rest, okay? What I now want to do is turn to what I call deflationary summativism. And um, this view has um, both a negative and a positive component as well. Deflationism is the view that a group G justifiably believing that P does not involve the group itself justifiably believing that P, where this is over and above or otherwise distinct from the individual members of G justifiably believing that P. Rather, a group justifiably believing that P is understood only in terms of some or all of G's members justifiably believing that P. So group justification is just a matter of individual justification. Okay. Okay. So 
Um, in a recent paper by Alvin Goldman, it says forthcoming on your handout, but it's come forth. Um, so it was published last year. Um, I think that um, he starts to develop, I think, a really interesting deflationary summativist view. <clears throat> so I want to spend some time looking at it. The best way, I think, to get a handle on um, Alvin's view is to consider this case called different bases. Okay? So G is a group whose members consist of 100 guards at the British Museum, M1 through M100. Each of the first 20 guards, 1 through 20, justifiably believes that guard Albert is planning an inside theft of a famous painting. Let's call that A. By deduction from A, each of them infers the proposition that there is a guard who's planning such a theft. Let's call it T. And the remaining 80 guards don't believe it and aren't justified in believing it. Each of the second guards, 21 through 40, justifiably believes that Bernard is planning an inside theft, we'll call this B, and infers T from B, and the other 80 don't believe B and aren't justified in believing B. And finally, each of a third group of 20 members, 41 through 60, justifiably believes that guard Cecil is planning an inside theft, this is C, and infers T from C, and the other 80 don't believe it and aren't justified in believing it. So 60 members of the group believe T by deduction from some premise he or she justifiably believes. Okay, so what Alvin does is something that I'm surprised people hadn't done prior to Alvin. Um, so there's this very rich, you know, kind of literature on judgment aggregation. And most of the literature talks about kind of aggregating judgments, right, um, which are sometimes used interchangeably for beliefs. Um, what Alvin does is says, hey, okay, we're, virtually no one has written on justified belief, okay, why don't we just take the judgment aggregation framework and plug in justified belief for belief, right? We've got all of this rich literature talking about aggregating beliefs, and can't we just get the same results by aggregating justified beliefs? So that's what he does. Okay, so, um, so according to most of the leading judgment aggregation procedures, like aggregating group belief via a supermajoritarian procedure or via a majoritarian procedure, you know, where we're just, we get the, the, the group's belief just by aggregating the majority of it's the, mem the member's beliefs or a supermajority. Um, according to most of those, the group believes T that someone is planning the inside theft. Okay, so now Alvin asks, but does the group justifiably believe that someone is planning the inside theft? Okay, here's what he says. G's belief in T may be considered from two perspectives, the horizontal perspective and the vertical perspective. The horizontal perspective addresses the question of the J status of G's belief in T solely in terms of other beliefs of G, i.e. group level beliefs. G's belief in T is unjustified in terms of horizontal J dependence. This is because although G believes T, G does not infer T from any justified group, group level belief of its own. The situation is different, however, when we consider G's belief in T by reference to vertical J dependence. Consider all of the members' beliefs in T and the proportion of them that are justified. Given this vertical criterion of J dependence, G's belief in T is justified because 60% of G's members justifiably believe T. Okay, so Alvin says two different perspectives. The horizontal perspective would say, the group justifiably believes that someone is planning the inside theft 
only if it justifiably infers that from a group level belief, a justified group level belief. Okay? So let's just say that it has to be a supermajority, like a supermajority. Let's just stipulate that. On the horizontal model, it would need to be the case that, let's say, 60 members of the group justifiably believe that it's Cecil, for instance. Did I say 60? Yeah, that 60 members of the group justifiably believe that it's Cecil or Albert or something like that. Okay? But they don't, right? 20 believe it's Albert, 20 believe it's Bernard, 20 believe it's Cecil. Okay. So on the horizontal model, Alvin says, we'd have to say that the group does not justifiably believe that someone is planning inside theft. He finds this super counterintuitive. Okay? So one way of thinking about this is that Alvin is introducing into the literature this notion of vertical justifiedness, modeled on the judgment aggregation framework. Okay? There is this conception of justifiedness, and then he spends the whole paper developing vertical justifiedness. Vertical justifiedness just says okay, that individual justifiedness in a single proposition is transmitted to the group. So if 60% of the group justifiably believes that someone is planning an inside theft, I mean, sorry, did I say 60 members individually believe that someone is planning an inside theft justifiably, then that transmits to the group with respect to their justified belief in that proposition that someone is planning an inside theft. Even though there is no group level justified belief that it is inferred from, that is justified, okay? So that's, in a way, Alvin's, I mean, the, the paper is rich in all sorts of ways, I think, but that's like Alvin's like big, you know, kind of point that he wants to kind of really hit home. We need to be thinking about this vertical justifiedness, and hey, it's really easy to think about because we've got this judgment aggregation framework that's super rich and well-developed, right? And so we can just kind of borrow that and end up with this, um, you know, conception of, of group justification. Okay. So Alvin proposes on, the, on this model, model of vertical justifiedness, he proposes um, this principle called GJ. Thanks, I got it. <laughs> um, no, but thank you. <laughs> um, I get super uncomfortable when people do things for me. Um, okay, so, um, so, um, so GJ. If a group belief that P is aggregated based on a profile of member attitudes toward that P, then ceteris paribus, the greater the proportion of members who justifiably believe that P and the smaller the proportion of members who justifiably reject that P, the greater the group's level or grade of justifiedness in believing that P. Okay, super intuitive principle, we might think. Group level justifiedness goes up with individual justifiedness, right? You got two groups, 80% justifiably believe that P here, 60% justifiably believe that P here, this group is going to have a higher level of justifiedness overall, okay? That's essentially what this principle is saying. Um, I think it's false, though, and I think it's false in a lot of different and interesting ways, and I think we can learn a lot. So, I mean, take what I'm about to do now as an invitation to think more about a topic that I think very, very few people have thought about. I think that um, Elvin got really defensive when I wrote these criticisms. And I told him, like, I actually think the, the, the idea, the, what he proposed was really rich and interesting. And I think that the problems that um, come out of it um, 
suggest a lot about collective justification. Okay, so the first problem I want to raise, I call the group justification paradox. We can call it a lot of different things. I also call a version of it the defeater problem. But anyway, um, let's modify different bases in the following way. Okay, so G is a group whose members consist of 100 guards at the British Museum, okay? Um, each of whom justifiably believes that an inside theft of a famous painting is being planned by only one of a total of five possible guards, Albert, Bernard, Cecil, David, and Edmund. Okay, now um, the, the case is structurally the same as the first one, okay? Um, except that each of the first, okay, so each of the subgroups, each of the subgroups of 20, believes that only one guard is planning the inside theft. One and only one, okay? So they all know that there's possible of only five guards. These five, Albert, Bernard, Cecil, David, and Edmund. Each subgroup believes that it's only one, okay? So let's just, each of the first 20 guards, M1 through M20, justifiably believes that only guard Albert is planning the inside theft. Um, and then each of them infers the proposition that there is a guard who is planning such a theft. Um, and then the remaining 80 guards don't believe it and aren't justified in believing it. And the same is true for the next four subgroups. You know, the second 20 believe that it's only Bernard, the third believe that it justifiably believe that it's only Cecil, and so on. Okay. So a hundred members of G justifiably believe T by deduction from some premise he or she justifiably believes. <clears throat> okay. Okay. So in the original different bases, 60 out of 100 members of G justifiably believe that there is a guard who's planning an inside theft. In conflicting bases, 100 out of 100 believe this. Okay, so according to GJ, this is very straightforward. The group's level of justifiedness and conflicting bases um, should be significantly higher than the level of justifiedness in different bases, right? Because we've got 100 here and 60 here individuals. But let's take a closer look at conflicting bases. So each of the first 20 guards, M1 through N20, justifiably believes that only Albert's planning the theft. And given this combined with the fact that all of the guards are aware that Albert, Bernard, Cecil, David, and Edmund are the only possible thieves, each of these 20 guards also justifiably believes that Bernard, Cecil, David, and Edmund are not planning the theft, right? Each of the second 20 guards justifiably believes that only Bernard is planning the inside theft, and then given their other background beliefs, justifiably believes that Albert, Cecil, David, and Edmund aren't doing it. And similar considerations apply with respect to the other three subgroups. Each believes that one and only one guard is planning the theft and believes that the other four guards are not planning it. Okay. Okay, but now I think we're in a position to see a problem unfold, right? For each of the five possible candidates of the theft in question, 80 out of 100 guards justifiably believe that he is not planning it, right? So you take Albert, and 80 out of 100 of those guards is going to believe it's not him. And then you take Bernard, and 80 out of 100 is going to believe it's not him, and Cecil and so on. On nearly every judgment aggregation function, it's going to follow from this that the group justifiably believes 
that each of the five possible candidates is not planning the theft. Because 80 out of 100 on nearly every judgment aggregation function is going to be adequate for the group justifiably believing this. And since the group justifiably recognizes that Albert, Bernard, Cecil, David, and Edmund are the only possible candidates for planning the theft, the group justifiably believes that no one is planning the theft. But according to the vertical perspective, G also justifiably believes that someone is planning an inside theft. So I think that this principle that looks very intuitive and very plausible leads to this problem that I call the group justification paradox, where G ends up justifiably believing both that no one is planning the theft and that someone is planning the theft. Okay, now, um, because we're really low on time, I don't know where, I mean, it's like there's something wrong with that clock, because I mean, it's just like, I mean, I've got a lot more to go through. Um, let me just say that, um, you might notice that the paradox relies on accepting that conjunction is closed for justified group belief. Um, I have a section in the paper where I, I deal with, where I you know, kind of suggest that even if you want to reject that, I think you still get a problem um, of an inconsistent set, and I think that it's an inconsistent set in a way that's problematic, um, even if you think that it's not problematic in like other like the preface paradox or like lottery paradox. And um, I'm happy to talk about that maybe a little bit during the Q&A or something, but I, I kind of need to move on. Um, <clears throat> okay. Okay, so the basic idea is that here you have a case in which um, 100 guards can justifiably believe, you know, justifiably believes that someone is planning the inside theft, and here you've got one where 60. Um, and contrary to Alvin's principle, the level of justifiedness is lower in this case um, than it is in the one with 60 because the bases conflict, okay, and they end up with these conflicting beliefs. So um, I think that once you see this problem, that the reasons for belief, the reasons for believing that someone is planning the theft, but we don't even have to talk about a principle like that, right? I mean, you can take any proposition, right? If the group members are going to believe it for ways that are going to be defeating, right? The level of justifiedness is going to go down in this group, no matter whether 80 or 100 justifiably believe it. So the GJ principle of just straightforward aggregation, I think, is just way too oversimplified. Okay. okay. Now, we might try to avoid this problem by modifying... Um, the GJ principle as follows. So on your handout, this is GJ1. If a group belief that P is aggregated based on a profile of member attitudes toward that P and the individual member's bases for believing that P are non-conflicting, then ceteris paribus, the greater the proportion of members who justifiably believe that P and the smaller the proportion of members who justifiably reject that P, the greater the group's level or grade of justifiedness in believing that P. So basically, Let's just somehow rule out that the bases can conflict. And then if we can kind of bracket that problem, then, um, then group justifiedness should transmit smoothly from individual justifiedness to the, to the collective level. Okay? So we might kind of think that that transmission is interrupted by these conflicting bases, right? You know, normally it would kind of smoothly transmit to the, to the higher level, so just let's restrict that the, you know, the bases can't conflict and then we can get that smooth trans transmission. Okay. 
but I don't think so. I think that there's another kind of problem. I actually think that in some ways this problem is more interesting for collective epistemology than the first one, because um, I think that, like, I mean, I personally would like to think more about this kind of, you know, what this kind of case shows than the conflicting bases one. So I call this the collective evidence problem. <clears throat> okay, so um, I'm going to skip that whole first long paragraph. It's just like, oh no, I can't. I'm sorry. Wait, can I? No, I can't. I'm sorry. I thought it was structurally. It's not. Okay, I have to go through this. Okay, G is a group whose members consist, oh, but I'm on page five of the six. Okay, so G is a group whose members consist of 100 guards at the British Museum, one through 100, each of whom justifiably believes that a man was responsible for an inside theft of a famous painting. Okay, the first 20 guards, I'm one through them, 20, justifiably believes that the thief exited a men's bathroom right before the theft, and from this infers that it was a man. Okay, the remaining 80 don't. The second 20 justifiably believe that the thief has a goatee and infers um, that it was a man from, from that. The other 80 don't. Um, the third justifiably believes that the thief was greeted as sir and infers that it was a man from that. The fourth, where is it? Justifiably believes that the thief was talking in a baritone voice and infers that it was a man. And the fifth, um, believes that the thief's name is William. Okay. At the same time, each subgroup of 20 guards also has counter evidence for the basis of the justified beliefs of a different subgroup. Okay. So 1 through 20 justifiably believe that not goatee, since they have evidence that the thief's goatee is fake. 21 through 40 justifiably believe that not baritone voice, oh no, I'm sorry, not bathroom, <laughs> men's bathroom, since they have evidence that the bathroom that the thief was seen exiting is in fact a family bathroom. The next one's not William, since they know he was using a pseudonym. The next one was, the, the sir was being said to the companion and not baritone voice because it was a recording. Okay, the idea is this, okay. <laughs> You've got these five subgroups, right? Each is basing their belief that it was a man on a particular belief, okay? Each subgroup has counter evidence for the belief of a different subgroup, okay? When you look at it as a collective body, the evidence adds up to zero. It is all defeated, okay? It's all good evidence, right? Okay, my evidence that he was, it was a recording is good evidence. The 20 members that have that evidence is good evidence. Okay? The evidence that it was, um, I don't know, I can't remember all the details, but anyway, you get the point, right? So there's counter evidence for every subgroup upon which the belief that it was a man is based, okay? The reason I think this problem, type of problem, is more interested for, interesting for thinking about collective epistemology is because it really is suggesting that we might need to look at the body of evidence as a collective entity itself. Right? That it's not enough to just look at, I mean, the way Alvin wants to conceive of justified belief here is that we just take like individuals, right? And we just kind of scoop them up, right? And put them together and like, you know, it just kind of adds up to be justified belief. But if you're persuaded that, okay, so there are two different things you might be persuaded by with collective evidence. One is that there's no justified belief at all, okay? The justification has all been defeated. I don't need anything that strong to have a problem for Alvin, right? All I need for there to be a problem for Alvin 
is for you to agree with me that that case, the level of justified belief is lower than it would be in a structurally parallel case where you don't have all of that counter evidence. But the level of individuals is slightly lower. Rather than 100, you've got you know, 80 or something like that. Right? Alvin is committed to saying that in this case, it's significantly higher. All I need to show is that it's not. So even if you're not persuaded that like, there's no justified, no justification, or very little, all I need for you to agree with me that there's a problem for Alvin is for you to think that the level of justification is lower than in a case in which the level of individuals, the number of individuals who have the justified belief that it was a man is higher, let me even slightly higher, but there's not all of this defeating evidence in the collective body. Okay? Okay. <clears throat> okay. okay, let's move on to section um, eight. <clears throat> Okay, so I think that the modification to GJ fails to solve the problem for this broadly aggregative account of justified group belief. There's a further objection that I want to mention um, kind of briefly. This is called, oh, I call this the group normative obligation problem. Okay, okay, so let me just read it. G is a group whose members consist of three nurses employed at a nursing home, one through three, each of whom justifiably believes that patient O'Brien is not at risk of dying. The first is aware that she forgot to give O'Brien his medication, but also justifiably believes that this act of negligence alone isn't sufficient to put him in danger of death. The second is aware that she forgot to give him his second medication, but also justifiably believes that this isolated incident isn't enough to put him at risk. And the third is aware she forgot to give him his third medicine, but also justifiably believes that that one's not enough to, to kill him. At the same time, all justifiably believe that him missing all three medications would put him at serious risk of dying. Moreover, it's an explicit requirement of the collective unit comprising the positions held by these three nurses that they always communicate with one another about the patients for whom whom they mutually care. Despite this, they don't share their respective acts of negligence with one another, and so they each justifiably believe that the other nurses successfully gave him his medicine. So through failing to fulfill their responsibilities, qua group members, they lack crucial evidence that they should have had and that would reveal the epistemic deficiency of their beliefs that O'Brien is not at risk of dying. <clears throat> okay, so um, given the, 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 that I don't have a lot of time, you're just gonna have to grant me something in this case. You're gonna have to grant that normative defeaters in general defeat justification for belief. So basically you're gonna have to grant to me that there is, I mean, and if you don't, if you don't wanna grant this, then you're not gonna like this case. So, I mean, that's okay. But, um, but basically you're gonna have to grant that evidence that you ought to have, that you don't have, can defeat your justification, okay? I think that's plausible, um, but I know that not everybody does. Um, so, um, so, you know, if you grant that, then this is what I'm proposing. Um, that by virtue of membership in a group, there are normative obligations that come along with that membership that are epistemic in nature. Okay, I don't think that this is that shocking, right? I mean, like, obviously, 
if I'm a medical doctor, I have certain obligations that come along with being a doctor, but some of those are epistemic in nature, right? I mean, about my handling of the evidence, evidence that I ought to have, evidence that I should consult, right? These are epistemic obligations that, you know, kind of I have in virtue of my role, maybe my social role or my professional role, but they're epistemic nonetheless because they guide the kinds of things that I ought to be doing in order to have adequate evidence to base my beliefs on, okay? What I'm suggesting is that just as there are obligations that come with particular social and professional roles, so too there are obligations that come with by virtue of membership in particular groups, okay? Some of those are very, very obvious, right? One is communication, right? Okay, so there's this doctrine in the law, in, you know, in, um, in American law that I think is really fascinating. It's called the collective knowledge doctrine. And the doctrine is in place, so basically the idea is that if you know, you believe something, and you believe something, and you believe something. And the conjunction of those three things is sufficient, like for instance, for establishing mens rea, okay? Then we attribute to the collective entity, you know, you as a group, knowledge of the conjunction, okay? Even if you were completely unaware of Q and R, and you were completely unaware of P and R, right? We attribute knowledge. The reason for this is precisely because American law wants to prevent deliberately compartmentalizing knowledge, okay? Setting up corporations and you saying, you don't talk to you guys and you don't talk to you guys and blah, 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 because then we can kind of get off the hook morally and legally for all sorts of things, okay? There are obviously obligations, communicative obligations that come along with sharing evidence when we are members of groups, okay? I'm trying to give you an example of one, right? If there's a collective entity that is responsible for a patient's life, okay, they are responsible for communicating crucial information that would justify their belief that the patient is not at risk of dying, okay? And I'm also claiming that those normative obligations are specifically in virtue of their role in that collective entity. If you're not pers persuaded by this particular case, all I need is that there is a case in which a group, that normative obligation comes by virtue of the membership of the group. I tried to stipulate that by saying it came with their employment, right? This was specifically built into their, their employment, but I mean, I think that there, you know, I think that it wouldn't be difficult to come up with these kinds of cases if you don't like this one. The idea is that um, because those obligations come, come about at the group level, um, your justification goes down by virtue of violating it as a group, even though as individuals subtract your membership in that group and as individuals you might be behaving impeccably, okay? So subtract your group membership and you might have no reason why you need to talk, communicate with other people about this. You might be perfectly justified in believing that, that the patient's not at risk of dying, okay? The idea is that violation of group norms can lower the justification. Again, even if you don't want to say it's defeated, I don't need anything that strong for this to be a problem for Alvin. All I need is that the violation of a group norm can lower the level of justification so that if there are 60 members that justify, justifiably believe that P here but have violated nor the group norm, and 80 here, I'm sorry, 40, you know, like, anyway, if, the, I forgot what I said here. What did, how many did I say? 60. 60, okay. If there's 60 here, but they violated the norm, okay, the level of justifiedness can go down, okay, so that the principal GJ is violated, 
Okay. So like I said, all I need is a very weak claim. I'm actually on board with a stronger claim, but all I need is the weaker claim. Okay. Okay, I've got six minutes. I can do it. Okay, so what I want to say is that um, um, I want to say that we should think about groups as what I call, um, like, I call it the group epistemic agent account. I don't know. Um, the idea is that I'm not an inflationary theorist. I don't think that group justified belief like floats freely from the justified beliefs of individual members. I think it's anchored by the justified beliefs of individual members. But I think that there are distinctively interesting epistemic things that arise at the group level. For instance, the relationship between the bases upon which beliefs you know, kind of are grounded, right? The interaction among those bases. Looking at collective bodies of evidence as a whole Okay, looking at kind of the body of evidence that like, let's say a religious community possesses as a whole. And if it's like rife with conflict and incoherence, I think it just seems obvious to me that that group is going to be less justified that one, less justified than one that doesn't have all of that conflict, you know, even if it has fewer members that justifiably believe the, prop, the religious proposition, right? Okay. Um, I think also that there are group epistemic norms Okay, that arise just at the group level, that also make group agents, I'm sorry, make there be group epistemic agents in their own right. Okay? Okay. So, um, okay. Okay, so, um, so the basic, the way I put it is I propose that groups be understood as epistemic agents in their own right. Those, the ones whose justified beliefs are constrained by the epistemic statuses and normative obligations of their individual members. Okay, so I propose two different conditions to consider. Okay, the first one is supposed to be taking care of the conflicting bases problem. Okay, so basically, this is saying a group justifiably believes a proposition if a significant percentage of the operative members justifiably believe it, and they are such that adding together the basis of their justified beliefs yields a belief that that is coherent. Lots of views of coherence out there. Um, um, I just had a, I, there's a volume that I edited in Collective Epistemology um, where um, Rachel Briggs, Kenny Iswaran, Fabrizio Cadiani, and Brandon Feidelson just proposed a new interesting account of coherence. You plug it in. I'm not, for, for, that's not my, you know, I'm not, that's not my job. I'm just saying the bases need to add up in such a way that they're coherent, okay? So that's to try to deal with the conflicting bases problem. The second condition, before I even read it, so that you're not put off by it, let me tell you what I have in mind with the second condition, okay? I, I always, I find the second condition like more to my liking when I think about it this way, okay? I think that you should look upon the second condition in sort of like the, the spirit of when we're talking, when we're evaluating things in the law by what a reasonable person would do, okay? We've got this reasonable person standard that we use a lot in the law, right? Is this something that a reasonable person would believe? Is this something that a reasonable person would do, okay? And we need that standard a lot to assess the justification of particular actions, right? Okay. Um, this condition is sort of modeled in that broad spirit, 
Okay, so what it says is adequate disclosure of the evidence relevant to the proposition that P, accompanied by rational deliberation among the members of G in accordance with their individual and group epistemic normative requirements, would not result in further evidence that when it was added to the basis of, the G, of G's members' beliefs that P, yields a total belief set that fails to make sufficient, that fails to make sufficiently probable that P. The idea is that were the group members to disclose what they ought to disclose, to deliberate about it, it wouldn't yield further evidence that, I mean, not further evidence that would just like slightly lower the probability of that P, but that would fail to make probable that P, or sufficiently probable, whatever you think is needed for justification. I just kind of threw that in there. The idea being that as a whole, it doesn't, it fails, it doesn't fail to justify. Okay, so the idea is imagine that the members are doing what they really ought to do. And like I said, if you model this on like a reasonable person standard, the idea is if the group members weren't like kind of stashing away knowledge and hiding it here and concealing it from one another and like, you know, failing to communicate, if they were sharing it and deliberating about it, it wouldn't reveal further evidence that, you know, when, it, when we look at the body of evidence as a whole, failed to make um, that P probable. Okay, so that's, those are the two conditions. Um, okay, so the conclusion. Um, so I think Zach Zepsky moves over to the social approach because I think she thinks it's a very, very, very simple, straightforward way of justifying religious belief, right? You pick an authority or community, a community that you think is authoritative, and you say, hey, I think, you're an, I think you're authoritative. I think if I believe what we believe, I'm more likely to get it right. If what I said today about what we had to understand, what we justifiably believe, the situation is way more complicated. Going social isn't gonna help us out any, right? Because not only do we need to be individually justified, we also need to do things like talk about our bases for beliefs as a community, right? I mean, if we really want to ensure, condition two isn't saying that we have to, right? It's saying were we to, it wouldn't uncover evidence. But if we want to make sure that we're not missing out on crucial evidence that's conflicting with what everybody else has, we ought to talk about our bases. We ought to talk about why we believe the things that we do, what's, you know, what our reasons are, okay? So when we believe something as a group, as a collective entity, we have not only our individual work to do with respect to our beliefs at P, but we have a lot of collective work to do to make sure that our, our bases are not radically at odds with one another, that the total body of evidence doesn't actually add up to kind of fail to make probable that P, that we're not flouting norms that arise just at the group level. Okay, so this shift towards the social and religious epistemology, which like I'm all for in some ways, the moral of the story is it's not gonna make life any easier for us. If anything, it's gonna make it more complicated, but you know, maybe that's the way it should be. Okay, that's it.